the human eye can detect 10 million different colors. And my wife was like, oh, there aren't, there aren't 10 million colors. I think that's supposed to mean like different shades of different colors. So, uh, even though my wife is one of the smartest people I know, she couldn't. Uh, yeah, she was thinking literally 10 million different colors. It, it, the, the eye possesses 130 million light-sensitive rods and cones. Don't ask me what they are. But they convert light. This is the crazy bit. They convert light into chemical impulses. So light comes in, and then you get a chemical comes out, and then that chemical travels to the brain. Just utterly, utterly baffling. If the human eye were a digital camera, it would have 576 megapixels, which is 12 times more powerful than the newest iPhone 15 Pro. And Charles Darwin even confessed, and these are his words, that it was absurd to propose that the human eye evolved through spontaneous mutation and natural selection. So our passage for today, it's all about sight. It's all about the ability to see. And we're going to see Jesus do a miracle to restore sight to a blind man. But then we're also going to see that there's like a, a la another layer in this passage, which is talking about spiritual sight. And we're going to go on to that later as well. So the passage is Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. Um, there's loads of Bibles around the, around the church if you want to grab a physical copy. Uh, if you want to pull it up on your phone, by all means do that. It'll come up on the screen as well. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it for us. Then he took the twelve aside and told them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be, will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him. And he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the sayings was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front of him told him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has saved you. Instantly he could see, and he began to follow him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray before we dive into these words a little bit deeper. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for um, just the privilege and honor it is to gather in your name to be um, called sons and daughters of you. And um, I thank you so much, God, that um, you give us your words. Thank you so much that it's a light unto our feet, a light, a light unto our path. And I thank you um, that we get the, uh, we get the chance to, uh, to think about it deeply today and think about what uh, you want to want to teach us um, through it. So, as we were just um, 
praying and singing just now, Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts and help us to see you um, with, with 2020 vision this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're a note taker or you like kind of sermons that are in points, I'll give you three points for today. Point number one, the disciples couldn't see Jesus clearly, verses 31 to 34. Second point, the miracle of sight, verse 35 to 42. And then lastly, point three, the result of restored sight, verse 43. So first point then, the disciples couldn't see Jesus clearly. So Jesus pulls his disciples aside. They're on this journey. They're almost there. And he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen when we get there. Now they're going to Jerusalem. If you go back to Luke 9.51, it says Jesus determined to journey to Jerusalem. Or some translations say that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And it's been a remarkable journey. Jesus has been on this journey to Jerusalem with his disciples. And he's been teaching them along the way about many things. And they're getting towards the end of this journey. It's like the, cli- it's like the climactic build-up, the drum roll, coming into this moment where Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem. But he's not there just yet. And he turns to his disciples and says, let me tell you what's going to happen. What does Jesus say is going to happen in Jerusalem? Well, it's precisely what the Old Testament prophets said would happen. Jesus, throughout Luke's gospel and throughout the other, the other gospels we have, he sees the Old Testament as ultimately pointing to him. So everything that, the, uh, that we read in our Old Testament is all a crescendo building up to his, his ministry. And what is going down in Jerusalem is the climax of Jesus' ministry. He's going there to fulfill the prophecies and the promises. We read that one earlier on the screen from Isaiah. He's going to, to live out promises like that. He says this, he says, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. The Romans, the ones that were occupying that land at the time, the ones that were ruling in that area. He says, I'm going to be handed over into their hands. And then he says, I'm going to be mocked, insulted, spit on, I'm going to be flogged. And then they're going to kill me. But he also says, I love this, he will rise on the third day. So Jesus, all of the Old Testament is a drum roll building up to Jesus. All of Luke's gospel is a drum roll building up to what Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the moment in all of human history If all of human history was building up towards what happened in Jerusalem, then all of human history is making sense of what happened in Jerusalem. But think about it. You're Jesus, you've been on this journey, and it's about to come to an end, and you know what is facing you at the end of that journey. Jesus knew the pain, the humiliation, the shame that he was about to endure. And what does he do? He sets his face. He sets his face on what he has set out to do. Nothing is going to stop him in his mission to secure salvation for humanity. You see, Jesus knew with utter certainty what awaited him in those coming days. 
But in stark contrast, Luke records in verse 34 that his disciples understood none of these things. Now at this point, we could kind of pull back and be like, hang on a minute. These are Jesus' closest friends. They've been around, and around him doing all of these just utterly incredible works, these, these, these teachings that left people utterly speechless. How was it then that they didn't understand what was going to happen? Well, Luke kind of gives us an answer to that question in the, in the verses that follow. It says, it says, the meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So this brings up more questions. What's going on here? What, why would God hide something from the disciples when he could have made it perfectly obvious? And what is it that's being hidden about Jesus? Well, I think what they're missing is the connection between the writings of the prophets and Jesus' death and resurrection. They, they thought, they knew, they'd already articulated that Jesus was the Messiah. If you, if you go and look in Luke, Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. So they knew he was the Messiah, but they couldn't reconcile Jesus as Messiah with Jesus as the one who is going to be mocked, spat on, flogged, and then crucified. They couldn't get their heads around how God's chosen one who is going to bring salvation to the world would have such a shameful and humiliating death. How is, like, how is that fitting into God's plan is kind of what I can imagine was in their heads. This, this doesn't fit. Spat on, mocked, crucified. This just doesn't add up to what they thought God's Messiah would, would be like or, or what would happen to God's Messiah, God's chosen one. So they couldn't put the pieces together. They knew Jesus was the Messiah, but they, they didn't yet have the ability to, to understand that the Messiah was going to lay down his life for the world. That was still something that they couldn't get their heads around. Does, does God grant them this knowledge? Well, if you flick forward in your Bibles to Luke 24, 27, we see that he does grant them this knowledge. We, we read about this moment on the, the road to Emmaus. Jesus is walking along. They don't know that it's Jesus, but two of his disciples and Jesus start this conversation. And Jesus explains how all of the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to the Messiah. And then Jesus leaves. They go and have a meal. And then Jesus appears to them. They still don't know that it's him. And then he breaks bread in their presence. And when he does that, it says in Luke 24, 31, that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then Jesus... This is kind of a classic Jesus thing to do. Like, as soon as they recognize him, he vanishes. Don't know why he does that, but he's, he can do whatever he wants, right? Um, but yeah, Jesus leaves, and then they, they're talking with each other, and they say this. They say, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That's Luke 24, 32. So all this teaches us a valuable lesson 
about spiritual sight. Only God can help us see spiritual things clearly. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So according to the Bible, seeing Jesus for who he really is, is actually a miracle. It's not something that we can do on our own. John 16, 13 says that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. Some people talk about the Holy Spirit's ministry or part of the Holy Spirit's ministry is like a, like a flashlight that flashes onto Jesus. He guides us into all truth so that we can see things clearly. We've also got God's word as well, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, says the Psalms. As we apply this kind of first section of the passage, firstly, doesn't it comfort you that the disciples didn't connect the dots? I don't know about you, but sometimes I just feel like I struggle so much to, to, to just to get what, what God is doing in the world. So it's, it's actually really comforting, I think, that the disciples, that they were around Jesus, but they still didn't, they didn't quite get it. So I think there's a, there's, there's a lesson of comfort for us there. And I think another lesson is that we need help, just like they need help, to understand the unity of the whole Bible and how it points to Jesus. You see, that's the best way to read the Bible. The best way to read it is that it's all about Jesus. Every single passage is either pointing to him, it's making sense of him, it's a promise about him. And, and having the ability to see all of the Bible as, as pointing to Christ is something that, that God longs to do. He, he really longs to give us that insight into his word. And maybe you're here and you wouldn't say you're a Christian today. And maybe if you're being perfectly honest, none of this makes any sense to you. But I think there's a promise for you in this passage that if you ask, if you ask God to reveal himself to you, that he will. I think the, the Bible teaches us that God loves it when we humbly come to him, asking him to help us understand his words. And he actually delights to open your eyes. It's saying that he, he doesn't do it begrudgingly, he does it with, with absolute delight. And he wants you to be able to understand how Jesus' death and resurrection, how it changes everything. How it utterly changed the course of human history. How it utterly changes our hearts. How it utterly changes everything in our lives. So I would say, yeah, if you're struggling, if you're not a believer, then that is a prayer that I think God will always grant if you ask him for knowledge. So that's the first point then. Second point is the miracle of sight. So this is the, kind of the main chunk of the passage. So if you look at verse 35, Luke introduces this, this character into the, into the story, a blind man. It says in verse 35, as he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. So if you think being blind is like hard now, like it, I think it's like, it's really hard for us to get our heads around just how hard it would have been to be blind in the first century. His whole 
life and identity would have been shaped by his lack of sight. He was utterly dependent on others for survival. Begging is his only option to sustain his life. If you remember last week, we were looking at the rich young ruler. And I think it's interesting that Luke kind of, he kind of like juxtaposes these two characters. The, the rich young ruler had everything. He had power, he had wealth, he had status, he had the best clothes. And then in a few short verses, we meet this guy that's literally at the complete other end of the scale. And we can assume, I think, that he, he begged every day. This is probably where he set himself up every day to beg. But however, today is different. He's begging by the road, and he hears this commotion. He hears all, all this kind of clamoring. He hears all these loud, loud cries, and he's like, he's like, what's, you know, what's going on? And they say in verse 37, Jesus of Nazareth is, is passing by, they told him. Now, it's really interesting that the crowd highlights Jesus' earthly origins. I, think, I don't think that's a mistake by Luke. Luke is a doctor. Luke's a smart, a smart guy. And it, he, said, he says at the beginning of his gospel that he carefully constructed this narrative of Jesus' ministry. So I think it's absolutely on purpose that, that Luke records that the crowd say, Jesus of Na Nazareth. Now, where's Nazareth? Well, <laughs> a better question would be what, what Nazareth what wasn't, basically. Naz Naz Nazareth, it wasn't a place that people knew. It wasn't a place where any kind of major transport links went to. Um, nobody great had ever come out of this place. It was basically a backwater off the beaten path. It was uncelebrated, and it was like a forgotten town. It isn't mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. And in, and in John 1.46, a man called Nathaniel hears that Jesus came from Nazareth. I'm struggling to say that word, sorry. <laughs> Every time I say it, I'm like lisping and stuff, sorry. It's probably the massive gap in my teeth. <laughs> I've, only got, I've only got to say it a few more times, I promise. So yeah, Nathaniel, he, he turns to Philip and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> And upon hearing, upon hearing that Jesus is passing by, the blind man calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So do you note the difference? The crowd highlights Jesus' earthly origin, which, let's be honest, was a terrible place to be from. No, no one wanted to be from where Jesus was from. He grew up in this place, this forgotten town. Note the difference. The, the blind man says, Jesus, son of David. Now, here's the irony. And I think this is just such, a, such an incredible passage for so many reasons. But here's the irony. The blind man saw something in Jesus that the crowds missed. You see, the crowds only saw Jesus' earthly origin. But the blind man sees Jesus in a, in a different light. He sees that Jesus comes from royalty that he is the long-awaited Messiah. That's what Son of David is getting after. God's chosen king, who, who as the prophets had foretold, would come through the line of David. And you can look at that in, uh, in the genealogy in Luke chapter 2, 
you'll see that. David was arguably the greatest king who ever ruled over God's people. Not only was he a fierce warrior, he was also a poet. And he was a man after God's heart. Perhaps the blind man had listened to scriptures such as Jeremiah 23, 5. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I raise up a righteous branch from David, he will reign wisely as king and I minister justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So the blind man's calling out, he's calling out over and over again, making a huge racket. And next we read that the crowds try and shut him up. Now why are they trying to shut him up? Well, it's either because they disagreed with the title that Jesus was given here, son of, son of David, or they thought that Jesus shouldn't bother himself with the blind man. They had better things to be getting on with. If it was one or the other, or a mix of both, we don't, maybe don't know. But what it does show us is the crowds couldn't see clearly who Jesus was. And here's a little aside. If you don't see God properly, if you don't see Jesus properly, then you don't treat people properly. So, like, they just want to shut this guy up. They want to keep him at a distance to Jesus. They don't know the real Jesus. You see, if they did know the real Jesus, they would know that Jesus' heart, he literally is drawn to people like the blind man. He wants to bring salvation and healing and, and spiritual restoration to people like this. So they had a wrong view of Jesus, and that led to a wrong treatment of people. You see, if they'd, if they'd known more about Jesus, they'd know that literally Jesus starts his public ministry by reading a passage from Isaiah, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, if they'd known who Jesus was, they wouldn't try to silence him. And my mind goes to the, the story of the paralytic. If you've ever read that story, uh, it appears in Luke in uh, chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Basically, there's this guy that's paralyzed. He's lying on like a mat. And some of his friends literally pick him up and bring him to Jesus. The reason why I kind of thought about that was the crowd do the exact opposite with the blind man. They want to keep him at a distance. They want to shut him up. They don't want to... Bring him to Jesus, like the friends of that paralytic. They fail to see two things about Jesus. He has the power to heal, and he has compassion for people who need that healing. I think we can apply this to our own lives. Are we like the paralytic man's friends, going to great lengths to bring people into contact with the living Lord Jesus? Or are we like the crowds? putting distance between Jesus and those that need him most? Do we really get Jesus' priorities? You see, the crowds thought that Jesus had somewhere better to be. 
They didn't get his, his priorities at all. It's so easy, I think, for, for us to project our own priorities onto Jesus rather than letting him teach us about his priorities through his Holy Spirit and through his word. And I'm, I'm, li- I'm literally saying that purely and firstly to myself here. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that how you think about Jesus or how one, how one thinks about Jesus will have a greater impact on that person becoming more like Jesus or less like Jesus. I would say it's, it's that important. Who, who we think Jesus is will ultimately determine who we become as people. So may the Spirit keep our eyes clear. Clear eyes, full hearts, if anyone knows that. Focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the crowd tries to shut up the blind man. What does the blind man do? Just cries out louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, here's a guy that's been shunned his whole life, but he's not going to let this day, this chance pass him by. So he repeatedly shouts, repeatedly shouts. It's very, very similar to the tax collector, if you remember that from two weeks ago. The tax collector, he repeated a very similar phrase, Jesus, have mercy on me. It's a humble cry for mercy. There's no entitlement here. He doesn't think that Jesus owed him something because of how how terrible his life had been up until that point. No, no, it's a humble cry for mercy. And the man's cries must have made it over the hum of the crowd because in verse 40, we read that Jesus stopped. You see, the crowd saw the blind man as an annoying distraction, told him to shut up. But Jesus hears his cries, and he stopped. I was like literally floored by those two words when I was preparing this, this sermon. Because it's so easy to miss it when you, like, when you read it quickly. Jesus stopped. Let's remind ourselves of what he's doing, where he's going. He's on this journey. He's setting his face for Jerusalem. He knows that when he gets there, he's going to get put to death in the most gruesome and horrible way possible so that every single person on planet Earth could come into a new relationship with God, have their sins forgiven. He's literally going to do the most important work that anyone has ever done in all of human history, and yet he stops. Jesus stopped. We noted earlier that the blind man sees something in Jesus that the crowds missed. Here's another thing. Jesus sees something in the blind man that the crowds miss. Jesus sees a precious child of God who needs to know God's love and power. I think it's fair to say that as a church, there's been people going through some really, really, really hard and and trying and, and painful um, circumstances re- recently. And I think, I think this, this thing about Jesus stopping is, is, I think, just worth just pausing on for a sec. Because you see, Jesus stops for us. You see, Jesus, like, it's not like what he did in Jerusalem was, you know, it wasn't like his work was finished. Like, Je- Jesus is still doing an awful lot of work in the world, right? But yet he stops for us. He makes space for us. He sees us. 
And I think in particular, in, in particular, if you read all of the Gospels like quickly, he stops for the people that are most broken and hurting and vulnerable. So if that's where, where you're at today, and this might only, you might, you might only be at this point in, in, the, in the sense that you can only kind of really take this away for today because the pain is such that you just can't really think about much else. But know that Jesus stops for you, that Jesus sees you. Next, what does Jesus do next? Well, he commands that the blind man be brought to him. So that kind of speaks of the, the purpose and authority of Jesus. He, he's going to make it his mission to radically change the blind man's life. Harking back to another passage a few weeks ago, do you remember the passage of the ten lepers? So there's like these ten lepers come to Jesus, and they're like standing quite a long way away, and Jesus like heals them from a distance, right? Jesus could have done the same thing for the blind man. Like he literally could, he didn't have to bring him close. Like Jesus could have just said the words, and this guy would have, would have been healed. But in this particular instance, Jesus beckons him closer. You see, when Jesus detects faith in a person, he, inv- he invites that person to draw near. Jesus made sure that the blind man was brought to Jesus just like the paralytic man was. Paralytic man was on a mat. He was picked up by his friends. He was brought to Jesus. The blind man, the blind man I imagine, was picked up and, and led by the hand to Jesus. And then Jesus asks a really strange question. Verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? Now, our first thought can be, isn't that obvious? Here's a guy whose whole life has been ruined by his inability to see. So surely, he was calling out to Jesus with one thing in mind. He wants to see. Now, let's assume, and I think this is a safe assumption, that Jesus knew full well what the man wanted before he asked that question. So the question is, why ask? Why did Jesus ask, what do you want me to do for you? Now, there's quite a lot of theories around this, but I think these are probably the two best answers, I think the ones that seem most plausible. So then the first reason is that Jesus wanted this man to articulate his need. So if you'll, if you'll remember Austin's sermon a few weeks back was about persistent prayer. The big idea from that passage is we need to articulate our needs to God and we need to keep asking and not give up. We've already seen the tenacity of the blind man. He refused to be shut up. He refused to stop calling out to Jesus. And now Jesus asked the man, why are you so desperate to see me? Why are you so desperate for me to help you? You see, prayer is an articulation of need before a loving God who cares. God loves to hear his children and respond. But it has to start with speaking out our desires to God. We have to articulate that need to him. Secondly, Jesus is using this as a teaching moment, I think. Jesus is asking the blind man to name his deepest need. And Jesus is building up to a a teaching moment about what human beings' greatest need is. And we'll we'll return to that idea shortly. 
So going back to the narrative, the blind man's answer to Jesus' question is pretty predictable. I want to see, he says. And Jesus' response is also pretty predictable. Jesus just speaks the words and the man is healed. This fits with the Jesus that we know and love from Luke. We've journeyed with Jesus through Luke long enough to know that he has the power to heal and he has a deep compassion for those that need healing. This is one of the golden threads running through Luke. Hence the series title for our Luke series, A Story for Sinners and Sufferers. But what comes next is a little bit less predictable. Because after speaking the words, receive your sight, in the second half of verse 42, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Now, what's going on here? The blind man asks for his sight to be restored, but Jesus goes so much further and declares that this man is saved. You see, the blind man saw something in Jesus that the crowds missed. Jesus saw something in the blind man that the crowds missed. And here's the last one. Jesus saw something in the blind man that the blind man missed. Jesus saw that his greatest need wasn't restored vision, although that was really important. And obviously Jesus, out of compassion, dealt with that problem. But it's, it's really interesting that the main, the main problem or the, the main need that Jesus saw was a restored relationship with God. So it's interesting here that we actually have an account of Jesus opening the eyes of a man who could already see. What do I mean by that? Well, the blind man saw something in Jesus that led him to have faith in Jesus. And then according to Jesus, it's that same faith that saved this man. So we have here, we have a, we have a healing story and we have a salvation story. You see, the gospel, the good news, it's, it's, it's a word that we throw around a lot, the gospel. And it literally just means good news. And I don't know, if, don't know if you've ever heard it kind of put like this, but I think this is a really beautiful way of thinking about the gospel. It's like if you get an amazing diamond, like a huge, you know, the kind of thing that would be like under like, you know, laser, you know those lasers where if someone tries to steal it, it all sets the alarm off and whatnot. Yeah, if you see a diamond like that, you can look at it from like literally thousands of different angles and the light's going to hit it a slightly different way at every single angle. And I think like that's a great way of thinking about the gospel because the gospel is this beautiful diamond. It's the good news of the Christian faith, but it's so complex. It's not, like a, it's not a simple thing. As in, it's simple to understand, but it's got so many different facets, so many different ways of, of looking at it. It shines light in so many different ways if you just look at it a slightly different way. So every time you read your Bible, a great question to ask is, how is this passage showing me a different facet of that diamond that is the gospel? And let's just quickly do that with this passage. Here's a few steps that you can do when you're running through any, any kind of like facet of the gospel. Number one, how were things supposed to be in the, like in the beginning when God created a good world, when, when everything was very good, how are things supposed to be? And if you think about this passage, it's all about sight, physical sight and, and spiritual sight. And in the beginning, it says that they walked with God. So 
that sounds pretty literal, like they were, they were actually in his, in his very presence. And that they were seeing him perfectly, like with their eyes, but they were also seeing him perfectly with their spirits, with their hearts, with their, with their inmost being. Second question, when you're thinking about the gospel in any passage, is what went wrong? In this passage, I think Romans 1 is a really great way of understanding what went wrong with our, not only, yeah, um, not with our physical sight, sorry, but with our, with our spiritual sight, what went wrong. It says this in Romans 1, 18 to uh, 21. It says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify God or show gratitude. And here's, I think here's the, here's the, the kind of, the crux of this, um, these verses here. It says, instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. So there's something about sin that darkens us. It puts us in a position where we cannot see God for who he really is. There's a suppression of truth. There's a sort of putting it to one side and the result of that is that there's a murkiness now. There's a, there's a murky quality to our spiritual sight who God is. The third thing you can ask when you're thinking about any passage pointing to the gospel is how does Jesus deal with what went wrong? So the good news of the gospel in this passage is that Jesus has the power not only to restore physical sight but also he has the ability to bring utter clarity in, on, a, on a spiritual level as well. As we've discussed the fact that the blind man in our passage called Jesus son of David instead of Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth? Dear, oh dear. Never say that word ever again. Like everyone else, tells us that Jesus was already at work in this man's life, giving the spiritual discernment he needed to see Jesus for who he really, he really was. So in a way, the restoration of sight for the blind man, it was like the completion of Jesus' miraculous work in this, man's, in this man's spirit. It's like the cherry on top of the cake when he could actually see again because he could already spiritually see Jesus for who he really was. And let's be honest, that means that that blind man is going to have an eternity with God where he can see everything perfectly clearly. He's going to be in restored relationship with God, in restored relationship with others. It's just... It's just the, the opening of the eyes by Jesus is, is like the very, very last thing that Jesus did in this man's life. And just as miraculous as that physical thing was, it's just as miraculous what Jesus did for this guy's spirit. Lastly then, when you think about the gospel, the last one is what will it be like in the new heavens and the new earth? Because what Jesus has done for us now is, is amazing and beautiful, but then there's a completion that will come when we're in the new heavens and the new earth. And I think this, this, 
this passage from Revelation really kind of sums this up. So Revelation 22, 3 and 4 says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord's God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So as we come to our, our final point, bear with me, it's, it's really short, the third point. Third point is the, is the result of restored sight, verse 43. So at the Hallows Church, we've, we've got a core belief that the gospel of Jesus changes everything. The gospel permeates every area of our lives for our good, for others' good, for our city's good, and for our world's good. Isn't it amazing that the blind man is so impacted by Jesus' work in his life that he becomes a disciple? What's a disciple? Well, according to verse 43, a disciple is someone who is following and glorifying Jesus. I think that's a really, that's a beautiful way to sum it up. A disciple is someone who's following and glorifying Jesus. How are we doing in our discipleship with the Lord Jesus? How are we doing at following him? How are we doing at giving him the glory? You see, at this point, you can divert back to works. You can say, I'll show you all the ways that I'm a good disciple. I'll show you all the ways that I tick the boxes. I'll show you all the ways that I'm kind of on a good trend. I'm on like this upward trajectory in my discipleship. But I think it's so important, so important that we realize that what's really going to change us, honestly, and I think this, for me, this has almost been like the headline of 2023 for, for me personally, is literally the thing that changes you, the, things that, the thing that makes you uh, a more mature disciple of Jesus is knowing that he sees you. I, I, I really, like, it sounds so, so simple. But when we get, like, just how much he, he has stopped for us, just how much he's seen our needs, just how much he's gone out of his way to, to bring us into right relationship with God and with him, like, that is literally, like, the, that's the launch pad of everything we should be doing in the Christian life, is, is being seen, known, utterly adored, treasured by, by, by Jesus. I've got a mentor who's literally been saying to me all year, like, are you remaining in Christ? How, uh, are you remaining in Christ? How's your intimacy with Christ? How's your friendship with Christ? How's your... What's it, what's it like being a spouse of Christ? Tell me about your, your marriage with Christ. I used to, just as a little, just a little aside, I used to really struggle with that language. Like, how, like, how am I supposed to think about myself as a bride? I just thought it was really weird. But like, now actually being married for like 12 years, it's actually like such a, it's, that's a beautiful way of like describing like the relationship we have with, Je- we have with Jesus. Um, I just think, yeah, I just think it's just, you can, you can plumb the depths of that one phrase, like, we are the bride of Christ. You could spend a whole lifetime, like, digging into that, I think. But, yeah, like, if we, 
if we're really going to change, if we're going to become people who follow and glorify Jesus more and more, then it literally all comes from being treasured, being known, being loved, being, being utterly adored by Jesus. And I think that, you know, just, I think the, the impact, the impact on like, on the hallows, I think, if we, if we, if we can all collectively, like, drill down into this, um, I think the, um, the amount of fruit that is kind of um, awaiting, I think, is, like, it, it just fills me with, like, such um, joy, and, and it's, like, just something that, as we go into, like, a new year, I'm just, like, so excited to see more of Jesus' work in, you know, in all of us. So, yeah, as we go into the is as we go into the new year, let's not let's not be like take that kind of um, New Year's resolution approach where it's like in 2024 I'm gonna do all these great things for God and like I'm gonna measure myself against all these like metrics and da 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 like oh oh that we would go into 2024 just basically saying I want to by the end of 2024 I want to know on a deeper level just how much you care for me love me how much you've done for me, like, because then it, 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 I think that some, some people think that it's like dangerous to think this way because it sounds like we're just going to be sitting at home in an armchair, just kind of like, like this, like just constantly receiving. And that's obviously not what I'm saying, but like we need that in, in, our, in our days, in our weeks, we need that posture of like just um, literally just soaking up like the love of Christ because then when we go out, we go to work or we we're trying to like parent our kids well, or um, or we're we're trying to, you know, um, be a good friend. Like all all that stuff, it just flows out of that of that one place, um, and it really it really isn't a to do. The Christian life is not a to do list, and it should it should we should really press hard against making the Christian life a to do list. It should be like, it should be gazing at Christ and then going and like, and sharing all that we all that we love about Him with with our world. So, um, yeah, would you pray with me um, as, we, as we kind of move to that end? Father God, thank you so much for this, this wonderful passage. Thank you that there's such a, uh, there's a funny old thing with your word where one passage, we can just read it one time and and then if we read it again and again and again, it's just like new things hit us from different angles, God. And I thank you so much that the gospel is that beautiful diamond that catches the light in, in thousands and thousands of different ways. And uh, we praise you, Lord, that we get the, the utter privilege, God, of carving out time on Sundays to, to come and, and, and look at that diamond, to look, to look at you, to, to, to think about all the things that you've done for us, and, uh, to think about your love for us. Uh, thank you so much, Lord, that you... You stopped for us, that you weren't too busy for us, Lord, that you carved out that time um, for the blind man. And we can, we can know for certain that you've done that with us too, that you carve out time that you, every time we draw near to you, Lord, you, you draw near to us. So thank you so much, God. And would, would we be changed by that, God? That Would, would we be trained, changed by that simple truth of being in an intimate relationship with you that just... Um, goes so much deeper than any like earthly relationship that we can have God thank you that you've made that possible Lord thank you that you've 
opened our eyes to see you clearly. Um, thank you for the miracle of spiritual sight, Lord. And pray that you lead us forward into the future, Father. Thank you so much for Advent. Thank you for the hope of Christmas. Thank you so much, God, that um, we've got so much to celebrate right now. And I just thank you, Lord, that um, you long to fill us with joy and a joy that is infectious, God. And I just pray that you do that over the Christmas period, Lord. And as we go into 2024, Father, we would go we'd go forward with faith and we'd go forward with, with love, that we'd go forward um, utterly um, committed to one another and to each other's discipleship. Lord, I pray that we would follow and glorify you as we go into this new year. In Jesus' name.